I'm Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to Capehart. A new session of the Supreme Court is upon us. There's a new justice, and, since the Dobbs decision that overturned Roe v. Wade, questions about the legitimacy of the High Court. Who better to talk to about all of this than legal affairs correspondent for National Public Radio, the legendary Nina Totenberg? But we also talk about her new book, Dinners with Ruth, as in the late Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. In this conversation, first recorded for Washington Post Live on September 29th, Totenberg talks about their friendship that began decades ago, including why the liberal standard bearer didn't retire while Democratic President Barack Obama was in the White House. Well, this would have given her something that no, not even a great Supreme Court justice has, 2020 hindsight. She hoped very much to have the first woman president uh, name her successor. And of course, she, to some extent, that was a gamble and she lost. We're going to dive into the book at the same time as we dive into the big issue, and that's abortion and the Roe decision. Because you write in Dinners with Ruth that the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg was wary, if not critical, of Roe's argument. Rather than simply a matter of personal privacy, you write that Justice Ginsburg viewed abortion as a matter of freedom, which is rooted in the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. Explain her thinking on this a little further. She always thought that there was a better, uh, a better argument in addition to privacy. And that argument was the liberty uh, talked about in the 14th Amendment guarantee to equal protection of the law. And that liberty includes having um, uh, jurisdiction over one's personal uh, body, the, that that should be a woman's prerogative to decide uh, in terms of her own liberty. And that was what she always thought was a better argument. And she actually made that argument in an abortion case she took to the Supreme Court on behalf of a woman when she was an advocate, on behalf of a woman who didn't want to have an abortion when the military required her to have one or be discharged. And that case went to the Supreme Court the same year as Roe, but the government caved and changed its rule. And therefore, uh, there was no case left. And she yeah. always thought that that was an enormous missed opportunity to, among other things, show that this is an argument that goes both ways, the, the choice to have a child or not have a child. Mm-hmm. So then what would she have made of the, of the Dobbs decision that overturned Roe? Well, I think it's pretty clear that she would have strongly disagreed. She would have been appalled by the leak and she would have thought it was a real kick at the court itself and its integrity that such a a leak could occur. Um, But even when she testified during her confirmation hearing, she was very clear about her views on Roe at that time too. Could we talk more about about the leak? So much has happened in the news. Can you believe I forgot about the leak of the Alito draft opinion? (laughs) What a world we live in, huh? (laughs) Here today, gone tomorrow. (laughs) Right. But Nina, how corrosive on the culture of the court, and in particular, the relationships between the justices, was that leak? I think it was 
it was it was bad. And it was, you know, I think those of us who cover the court have come to some sort of a pretty much of a consensus view that that the most it most likely was leaked by a conservative of some sort who was hoping to freeze the vote at the essentially five to four vote in some ways and prevent the chief justice who had a middle ground from persuading Justice Kavanaugh to join him. And if that was the case, it served its purpose. Um, and, and it didn't budge. In fact, I thought it was really quite remarkable that uh, a draft opinion that came out in February, I mean, that was, that was drafted in February, it, uh, didn't change almost any word by the time right. it came out in June. That's, to my understanding, almost unheard of. Yeah, it, it's extraordinary. And I want to talk to you more about Chief Justice Roberts uh, in a little bit. Uh, but I'm just wondering, you've been covering the court since the 1970s. I'm wondering if you ever expected to see the overturning of Roe v. Wade, just given how you know the court works? Well, it was possible earlier. You know, uh, I think it was possible in the 80s um, when Justice O'Connor was on the court and Justice Kennedy came to be on the court. I think it was possible. Um, and I thought it was possible at the time. But in the end, it turned out that the court, writ large, uh, thought it was more important to preserve precedent and to stick with something that the court had a right that the court had said women had and not undo a right. I think nobody can recall a time when the court declared a, a constitutional fundamental right and then undid it. And that was sort of the view of the majority. All right, let's talk more about Justice Ginsburg in particular. You know, in, in the run-up to our conversation, we received a lot of audience questions about Justice Ginsburg's decision not to retire. Her dying wish was, quote, that I will not be replaced until a new president is installed. But after her death, then-President Donald Trump replaced her with the very conservative now Justice Amy Coney Barrett, do you think she would have chosen to retire while President Obama was in office had she known the future impact of her decision to stay on the bench? Well, this would have given her something that no, not even a great Supreme Court justice has, 2020 hindsight. And, you know, at the time, uh, she was at the top of her game. She was not sick. She was the, the senior liberal member of the court so she assigned some opinions and wrote some important ones and um i think she also knew at the time we never discussed this other than on stage so everything that i'm saying right now is inference she certainly knew there were the filibuster was still firmly in place and i think she thought she would say in public who better than i I think she thought that uh, with the filibuster still in place, it was likely that nobody she considered to be a genuine successor to her legacy could get confirmed. And that she hoped very much to have the first woman president 
uh, name her successor. And of course, she, to some extent, that was a gamble, and she lost. Mm -hmm. And and to you know, for point of clarification, the filibuster on Supreme Court nominations was in place when she was when she was saying that, which was blown up by. Um, then Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell to get through a bunch of Supreme Court justices for President Trump. So, Nina, how did you and Justice Ginsburg first meet? How did you become so close? Well, we met uh, when I was first assigned to cover the court when I was a very young reporter in my uh, early 20s. And I I didn't understand a brief that she had filed. And it was turned out it was her first brief in front of the Supreme Court. And I called her up and she gave me an hour of her time explaining to me, and in essence, it boiled down to this. The 14th Amendment guarantees equal protection of the law for all persons and women are persons and therefore should be covered under the 14th Amendment. And that, uh, that, was the first, and that ended up being the case in which the Supreme Court for the first time actually said that in any sense. Holy smokes. And in the in that meeting that you had with her as she's explaining this brief to you, what was she like? <laughs> well, it was a telephone call, so I couldn't uh, see telephone her. Telephone call. I, so it, I couldn't see her. And she had this very rich kind of low, deliberate voice. And she didn't make fun of me at all or any of my stupid questions for which I was eternally and to this day grateful. Whenever I call people up and I ask what I I'm pretty sure is a dumb question. It's nice that they don't make fun of me. <laughs> <laughs> well, as a as a, as a fellow journalist, I hear you on that. Uh, it is a blessing when they don't make fun of you, at least to your face. So then, how did your relationship change, Nina, with Justice Ginsburg over the years as she went from the federal appeals court to the Supreme Court? Well, when I first knew her and met her, she was in New York. And so I, I called her quite frequently about, about uh, legal questions. She taught me some of the finer point, points of law that I needed to know. Um, and lots of other people did too. And, they, and I'm very grateful to them forever. Uh, but I didn't really know her personally very well until she moved to Washington to be on the Court of Appeals. And she served on the Court of Appeals for, I think, 13 years. And during that time, we became personal friends as well as uh, professional ones. And uh, then at the very end of her life, the last couple of years of her life, we became incredibly close. Um, you, I had a question that just flew, just flew out of my head, Nina. I'm <laughs> so, so glad that happens to somebody other than me. <laughs> <laughs> happens to me a lot. But well, let's talk about you and, oh, now I remember, now I remember. In addition to being friends with Justice Ginsburg over all this time, right up to her ascension to the mm -hmm. Supreme Court, in that time, she became a big feminist icon. You know, the notorious RBG um, and, and other things like that. What was that like for her? Well, you know, she didn't really become an, a, a feminist icon until she was in her 80s. She didn't become the notorious RBG until she was in her 80s. And she was both, I think she enjoyed it. She found it very amusing at times. And she liked it. I think okay. she liked it. It was, a, it was a nice thing for her. 
That's the I mean, only way I know how to describe it. I'm not sure uh -huh. all of her colleagues thought it was so great because she got all this publicity and they didn't. Right. <laughs> so, but I will, I will say this, you know, yeah. one of my other great friends on the court was Justice Scalia. And I, probably my favorite interview that I ever did was an interview with the two of them on stage at Lisner Auditorium in DC. Mm -hmm. And they came to play and they told wonderful stories about each other. They teased each other and they argued with each other. And it was sort of the best example of a friendship, a long time friendship that could be based on not just on um, their agreements that they really liked each other and shared many things together, but that they absolutely and vociferously disagreed with each other. Mm -hmm. It was very cool. This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money, but by managing what you have. And the best way to manage your money? Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a new kind of finance app that's intuitive, powerful, ad-free, and takes the headaches out of budgeting. Try it free when you go to monarchmoney.com podcast. Monarch puts all your accounts, investments, transactions, and finances at your fingertips. With a complete view of your finances, you'll gain insights on your spending and find new ways to save. Plus, Monarch lets you customize your dashboard, collaborate with your partner, set custom budgets and goals, and track your progress toward them. See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it, and why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com slash podcast for your free trial monarchmoney.com slash podcast. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because let's just jump to that because you you have dinners at um, and have had dinners at your home where Justices Scalia and Ginsburg together and separately have been over for dinner. And I'm just wondering because that friendship between Ginsburg and, and Scalia is the stuff of legend, what made these polar political opposites such close friends. Well, first of all, only lawyers will understand this. She, she and he were both meticulous uh, civil procedure and uh, enthusiasts. And they were very, they were real nitpickers about that kind of thing. And they both loved writing, loved thinking about the law. And, you know, one of the great things that she always said he did for her was in the first big feminist opinion that she wrote as a justice, um, he was the lone dissenter in that, in that case, which involved VMI and, and whether women could attend VMI. Um, and he brought her his, the rough draft of his dissent. And he dropped it on her desk and he said, Ruth, I'm bringing this to you so you'll be able to address some of my points in your opinion. And she said, it absolutely ruined her weekend, but it <laughs> made her opinion so much better. And I thought that was a great example of, of their, um, their friendship. But, you know, she loved him among other things because he made her laugh and he made almost everybody laugh. And I, I think it's fair to say that his death actually was an enormous blow to the court because he had such 
joie de vivre that um, that is now missing. It's a much grayer hmm. place without him. Hmm. Hmm. You know, I want to ask you about misogyny because you and Justice Ginsburg um, were both succeeding professionally, professionally despite rampant misogyny um, and, and sexism. Did the two of you ever talk about it and commiserate over your version of misogyny that you were dealing with in your respective workplaces? Yeah, I think we did. We didn't consciously do it, but it, it, it inevitably came up as it came up with my colleagues, uh, Linda Wertheimer and Koki Roberts and others um, who women of our age certainly just experienced that. We almost always were the only woman where we worked, at least I was until I got to NPR. And um, and I, as I write in the book, you know, I think Ruth and I both for a very long time and other women felt like we were, you know, I didn't actually think of it as misogyny or even harassment. I felt as if, we felt, I think, as if we had our noses up against a window pane saying, come on, guys, just let us in. Just give us a shot. Mm -hmm. You know, speaking of those dinners that um, you've had with Justices Scalia and Ginsburg um, during, you had a lot of dinners with, with Justice Ginsburg during the pandemic, and this is while her health was deteriorating. Your husband, who's a surgeon and, ha and has what the best surgeon stories I've ever, I've ever heard, you may re recall. <laughs> <laughs> that dinner, but he gave medical advice to to Justice Ginsburg. But did you talk to her directly to Justice Ginsburg about her health? Not no, I and I really understood. That's one of the boundaries. I really, first of all, my husband is a hypnazi. Uh, he would never tell me. <laughs> I've had countless friends who talked to them about their health issues, and a year later, when I found out that so and so had been treated for cancer or whatever, I'd say to him, David, did you know that so-and-so had cancer all last year and was being treated? And he said, and he'd say, yeah. And <laughs> um, he just never told me. And, he, and he, he kept her confidences. And I knew enough not to try to barge into that, that that would have been a, a violation of her privacy and his professionalism. Mm -hmm. Um, speaking of boundaries, um, during this time of, of the justices deteriorating health, I mean, you, you wrote, for the next 18 months, I chose friendship. It was the best choice I ever made. What exactly was the choice you were making here? That I, that was, a, that was when she, when I learned, like every other member of the press corps, because my husband hadn't told me, that she had lung cancer and she was being operated on for lung cancer. And, and it's, you know, I tell the story in the book of how the next night I was waiting to do a TV hit after I'd written about it all day long. Um, and the, and I'm having dinner with my husband and at a restaurant and the phone rings, my cell phone rings and it's Ruth. And she says, Nina, I'm sitting here in the ICU, she had a chest tube in, my husband told me, um, and I'm having a wonderful consomme, better than I had any right to expect. And I'm just calling you 
to tell you why I forbid David to tell you anything about what was going on with me, because I didn't want you to be trapped between your friendship for me and your obligations as a journalist. So she understood and I understood, but I also understood that I'm an observer. Um, I, I miss things sometimes, but I did see her more often than other people at that point because she was coming to our house for dinner mm -hmm. almost every Saturday night. And I would worry about her terribly. And, and I, you know, I knew that it was tricky to say the least. I didn't, for a very long time, I thought she could beat it once again. This was her third bout with, with cancer, but eventually not that long before she died, um, the court put out a, a, a statement saying that she was also had radiation treatments for um, a recurrence of her pancreatic cancer. And I think all of us at that point at the court knew that she was likely not going to live that much longer. And she still was ferocious in her determination. And I couldn't really, all I wanted to do was be a friend to her. And I, I can't honestly say that I really thought she was close to death until she really was close to death. The last time I saw her, um, which was probably about a, a few days or a week before she, she died and she was terribly thin and she kept falling asleep at the table. And I thought, we really don't have a lot more time. You know, I'm listening to you t tell that story and, you know, here in Washington, but also in our, in our careers and the beats that we cover and the circles that we, we navigate, it's, it's almost impossible not to be have friendships with with some of these folks and i'm just wondering in that in that time i mean you have to go into you have to go into work you've got to cover the beat but how did it make you feel to like go into the court go into the office knowing that a person you're going to have to report on in her final final days final moments is someone who is close to you a friend well we weren't back at work yet Oh, that right. I keep forgetting about the pandemic. That's right. Yeah. We weren't back at work. And so, um, you know, we didn't go back to work really, I guess, until um, the new term of 2021, 20, the 20, whenever. But she died yeah. by then. Mm -hmm. she, she was gone by then. She, mm -hmm. I never saw her back on the bench. Mm. Well, Nina, I, I bring bring that up because Bob Steele, who's a formerly an ethics scholar at the Pointer Institute and architect of NPR's ethics policy, he writes, quote, the obligation of journalists is to have the public as their primary loyalty and to not let that loyalty be undermined by relationships with those that you are covering. And I was just wondering, for folks who are listening and wondering, did you put your loyalty to Justice Ginsburg ahead of your listeners? No. Mm -mm. I didn't know anything 
uh, you know, I would I would say that this was, if you cover the Supreme Court, you know when a justice is not doing well, but you don't know enough to go on the air and say, this person is dying. So those of us who covered the court for the year that Chief Justice Rehnquist had thyroid cancer and was and was still Chief Justice and presiding over the court with a tracheostomy in, we could see that he was failing. But you can't go you can't go public and say this guy is going to die soon. I mean, you don't know. You have no basis for knowing that. Everybody knew he was sick. We wrote about the fact that he was sick. He was on television swearing in a new president with a tracheostomy. The world could see he was sick, but nobody says, and he's dying. Right, because our profession <laughs> I mean, that, would require. That, this, this kind of sort of um, ethical, uh, The word I'm thinking of, I should not say on television. Um, uh, <laughs> How many letters? It, what does it start with? <laughs> M. Uh, <laughs> so this this kind of um, ethical reveling in what could have, should have, maybe ought to have been is mm -hmm. the thing that academics spend an enormous amount of time on and do not have. The, and they have the luxury of doing that because they're not at work actually covering a story, covering the court and covering the important things that people want to know about and, and sort of understanding how the court functions and what it's ruling on mm -hmm. and all that kind of thing. Whether Ruth Ginsburg or William H. Rehnquist died, whether we reported that it looked like they were dying or not, is is unimportant. Everybody knew that she had cancer, for mm -hmm. Christ's sake. <laughs> Everybody knew he had a tra tra tracheostomy in. Right. This is not rocket science. What are right. you talking about? Is it important to know who these people are, who I cover? Yes, I think it's very important. And it's important to get to know them and to... Yeah. Like and dislike them both. <laughs> <laughs> Nina, we, we've got uh, very little time, but I have to squeeze in two, two questions. One, to get back to Chief Justice John Roberts. Is he chief in title only, especially now there's a 6-3 conservative supermajority on the court? Has he lost control of the court? No, his job isn't to control the court. It is his job, if he can, to get the court to reach a, a broad consensus. That's a little difficult when you don't have a center on the court anymore. You have a six to three conservative majority. It would be the same for a, a liberal chief justice who had a six to three liberal majority. But I think because this is a court that's probably more conservative than any court in 90 years, and he's a conservative and agrees with them on many issues, but simply is not willing to go as far as they are, um, he may have, uh, you know, I think you will see him stake out a position that is slightly more centrist a few times a term, but don't look for it to happen very often. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and Nina, the, the last question, I got to ask you this because I'm sure folks are wondering, 
Does the court deserve the pu deserve the public's trust and confidence when a justice's spouse presses lawmakers to overturn the results of a presidential election, as Justice Thomas's wife did? Well, the, I guess the question is not whether she has the right to do it, but whether he has the right to continue to rule in cases in which she was very active. And I'll, I guess I, you know, I think that um, for the first time ever, there seems to be some consensus among um, uh, legal ethicists that Justice Thomas perhaps should have recused himself from a couple of cases. Um, but more than that, I think you can't really say. Um. Oh, we still have a couple minutes left. Let me ask, put up this audience question from Robert Manning from the nation of Oman, Nina. <laughs> yes. Did RBG envision a structural reform of, of the Supreme Court, like term, limit, term limits, timing of Senate confirmation votes before presidential elections, or adding to the total number of justices? Real fast. I. She always said that she thought if, if, the, if you were going to add, add, if you were going to make it a a term limit, you would have to have a constitutional amendment, and that would be very little unlikely to pass. She also opposed the idea of adding justices, and I don't think anybody ever envisioned some sort of a law that said you couldn't um, add justices or nominate justices to the court in a certain time frame before an election. So I never asked her about that in public or private. I never occurred to me. <laughs> hmm. Hmm. Nina Totenberg, legal affairs correspondent for National Public Radio and author of Dinners with Ruth. Nina, thank you so much for coming to K-Part on Washington Post Live. Thank you, K-Part, for having me. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to K-Part. It's produced by Nick Roberts. We'll have new episodes for you every Tuesday. I'm Jonathan K-Part. You can find me on Twitter at K-Part J.